Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined by Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. I'd better start by apologising for the fact that there was a slight technical issue with the podcast last week. There was a glitch on the website outside our control, and as a result, the email you have got uh, announcing that the podcast is ready did not work and it wasn't fixed until Monday. So I really apologise for that. We did send out the link again. Uh, Hopefully that won't happen again, but it was uh, dark goings on in the technical area beyond our control. So let's move on to this week, Simon, and start off as always by talking about the market. Well, I think it's fair to say it was a quieter week for the market, probably a chance for everyone to catch their breath, to be honest. Um, The FTSE all share, so uh, effectively the index for the UK market, will finish the week just down slightly. Uh, the investment company sector, probably a little bit better, end up in uh, positive territory. Uh, in terms of the sector average discount for investment companies, it's still below 4%, probably uh, bouncing around in a range of 35 to 4%. But certainly a, a quieter week post the excitement of coronavirus vaccines and US presidential elections. And obviously we've had Thanksgiving this week. So the US market closed on Thursday. And uh, historically, that's normally a quieter time for trading around the world. So a quiet week, but not short of announcements. We have a lot to get through this week. Let's start off with some corporate activity, mostly kind of mopping up little things that have been going on. There's been a couple of new things as well we're going to talk about. But let's start off by quickly updating ourselves, first of all, on a trust called Alternative Credit Investments, ACI, which has been in the news almost all year because of uh, disagreements between uh, the board, shareholders and the management company, which is now being changed or looks like it will be. Can you give us a very brief update on that one, uh, Simon, please? That's right. Well, we already knew that the board had agreed an £8.70 bid from Waterfall. And that's that had already been uh, discussed and revealed to the marketplace. What we learned this week is that uh, shareholders will have a chance to vote on it. And it will be a special resolution. So it requires at least 75% of shares voted. Uh, and that meeting will be held on the 17th of December. If that is approved, the scheme is expected to become effective uh, no later than the 25th of March next year. OK, just quickly, the discount on that one, suggesting that this is probably going to go through. Would that be right, do you think? Well, the discount at the moment is probably on about a 2 or 3% to NAV. So, I mean, yes, the, the, the 870p bid, there's actually a 12p interim dividend floating around. So when you factor in both things, it's it's probably there or thereabouts in terms of the share price. Okay, so let's move on to uh, alternative income REIT. This is a what seemed to be a subscale REIT that has struggled a little bit and has had recently had an offer, tender offer put forward by Glenstone Property. We've heard the outcome of that and it's not quite the same outcome as uh, perhaps they were hoping for, but tell us what's been happening there. Yeah, this is an interesting development and, and something a little bit unusual for the investment company sector. Again, we've, we've discussed this one before, but effectively Glenstone Property were looking to build a stake through a tender. They'd stipulated a price that they were happy to build a position and they said they were aiming for 25% of the share capital or not less than 20%. In effect, it came in at just short of 15%, but even so, Glenstone waived their minimum condition and they've acquired those shares. So they hold just under 15% of the share capital of that particular uh, property investment company. Subsequent to that, we saw the AGM. And actually, at that AGM uh, that happened just this week, uh, four resolutions were not passed. Uh, so a significant amount of uh, the shares were voted against. 
a number of the proposals, and that included the adoption of a proposed revised investment policy. So the board have acknowledged this, uh, and now they will engage with shareholders regarding their views, uh, and we'll see how this one goes. But clearly, uh, expect more news from this particular investment company. It seems a little murky indeed. Better just double check on the discount of that one as well, if we can, or how, where's the share price in relation to uh, the uh, the tender offer price? Can you tell us that? Well, the uh, the discount has narrowed in probably on a just short of a 20% discount. So it was wider at the time of uh, Glenstone's approach, but still on a relatively wide discount. But then to be fair, so are most uh, UK commercial property uh, investment trusts. So let's move on quickly, make a note about what's happened at Bailey Gifford China Growth which is their recently uh, taken on uh, Chinese investment trust. What's the story there? Yep, so this investment trust has been incredibly popular since Bailey Gifford uh, were appointed as manager, and it's also performed very well. But we did see the the premium really extend out on this one. Um, It even reached, um, it went uh, above 30% at one stage. Part of the story, it was a kind of technical issue. Part of the story here is that they needed to ask shareholders for uh, authority or approval to renew the authority to issue new shares. Uh, they've received that uh, this week. Though actually, interestingly, um, one of the resolutions only just passed. This was the one to allow the board to issue shares from Treasury. It only just scraped across the line, and obviously one or a couple of shareholders voted against that, and the board acknowledged that, and they're going to follow that up. But effectively, uh, Bailey Giver China Growth is now in a position to issue shares. It can issue up to 20% of its share capital again, uh, and one would expect that as a result of that, the premium rating on which it trades will ease in time. Has it come in at all so far? I mean, what what do we make of that uh, resolution being, I mean, is it, if it's not significant, why did it happen? I mean, what would be the thinking behind those who have voted against it? Do you have any, any idea about that? Again, it's a slightly unusual development, to be perfectly honest. I mean, issuing shares from Treasury is a, is a standard practice. And just to be clear, they're only issued at a premium to the NAV. So in the case of this particular investment trust, it used to be called Witten Pacific. It's obviously built up a number of shares in Treasury, so five buybacks. And actually, there was a tender offer around the time that Bailey Giver took this one on. So there are all these notional shares in Treasury. This is not unusual for an investment trust. And most investment trusts do have the powers to issue from Treasury. It's a very effective way of doing so. So the fact that they got approval to issue new shares, but a significant number of shares were voted against issuance from Treasury is a little bit odd. Uh, And one wonders whether there was some misunderstanding there. Yes, that does seem possible, certainly. Let's move on and talk about something called the Gulf Investment Fund. This is not a trust we've ever talked about before. It's a relatively small trust, but it's an interesting one in, in some ways. What can you tell us about uh, the Gulf Investment Fund and what's been going on there? Ticker there is GIF. Yeah, so three years ago, this was actually called the Qatar Investment Fund. And as its name would suggest, it was very much focused on Qatar. They got shareholder approval to broaden the mandate uh, and subsequently it's invested across the Gulf region. But as part of that change of mandate three years ago, they said that at the back end of 2020, where we find ourselves now, they would provide a full tender offer for shareholders. So a tender offer for up to 100% of the shares in issue. So this is a fulfillment of that promise. Uh, And they've also made it clear that if more than half of the shares in issue are tendered, uh, then they will have to look at winding up the company. But assuming that is not the case, they'll put in a number of measures, uh, including a management fee reduction, um, they will target an enhanced dividend policy uh, and they'll defer their continuation vote, uh, which was met June for next year. They'll push it out to 2023. 
So it is a little bit on the periphery of most people's uh, investment horizons, I think it's fair to say. But it's certainly an interesting one. Um, its share price is up about 77% over the last three years. Uh, and it's got a market cap of just under 100 million, but a very uh, narrow shareholder base. Um, really, its future will be decided by a very small number of institutional shareholders. Yes, I had a quick look at this one because I hadn't heard of it before. I hadn't looked at it before anyway. Uh, it was interesting. It was started about 10 years ago, as you say, initially for investing into Qatar, but uh, it's been broadened to the other members of the Gulf states. And it's sort of like a sort of mini index fund for the Gulf region. If you're for that particular side of the Gulf anywhere, it doesn't include Iran, Iraq and, and so on, but it does cover um, Oman and the uh, UAE and so on. So if you've got a particular need to invest in that particular area of the world, it's a, it's a way to do it, I guess. Uh, I did note they noted that the Middle East is going to be about 5% of the MSCI Emerging Market Index by the end of this year. And both Saudi Arabia and Kuwait are now part of the Emerging Market Index. So that is becoming a, something a little bit more significant. Uh, but it's, as you say, mainly an institutional trust. So let's move on to some fundraising. Well, the fundraising hasn't stopped. It's been a lot more of it coming out this week, or at least more announcements. Some of them could be successful. Some may not be so successful. So let's uh, quickly run through those. Let's start with the ones that have succeeded in raising uh, their cash. And that first one was one we talked about, I think, last week and the week before. is Gresham House Energy Storage Fund, GRID, being the uh, very useful ticker. What's the story there? So, as you say, they were successful. They raised £120 million in an oversubscribed placing at 105p per share. Uh, and those shares started trading on the 27th of November. And it's a significant fundraise for this particular investment company. It takes them up to a market cap of about 260 million uh, and it enables them to finance up to six new near-term acquisitions. So it really kind of builds this investment company out. And actually, as I say, the placing was at 105p per share and actually subsequently its share price has gone up a little bit more. So probably trading to somewhere nearer to 111p now. So we've often seen this actually with some of these investment companies. They come to the market, they're relatively modest-sized at start, but if they can prove that they can deploy their capital and they can start paying their dividends, and uh, you know they get a bit of a following wind, uh, and they've been successful in raising new money. Yes, that's interesting in one way, isn't it? Because it's often said these days that you need to have two hundred million or so to get the big uh, wealth managers and institutions interested in a, in a trust. But there are other ways to uh, start small, as you say, and to grow the trust over time, prove your concept, and then come back for more. That's certainly been a trend we've seen recently. So I don't think one should necessarily take uh, that 200 million figure at face value, at least as, as the way it's sometimes portrayed in the market and the media. OK, so let's move on to another one which raised some money. But uh, this was more of a squeaky ride, if you like. And that is something called the Schroeder British Opportunities Trust. They made an announcement about their IPO this week. And the result was what, Simon? Well, they were successful. They got the IPO away, which is the main thing. They raised £75 million, and that's at the lower end of the range they were hoping to achieve. I think they're aiming for £250 million and more if possible. That didn't come through, but they did get the £75 million. It has enabled them to get this thing launched, and it will start to trade on the 1st of December. And just to remind people, investment will be on high-growth UK companies, 
uh, probably with market caps uh, somewhere between 50 million and 2 billion pounds and it will invest in public listed companies and private companies as well and the two managers Rory Bateman who's the head of equities at Schroders and also Tim Creed who's the head of UK and European private equity. So I suspect after um, Sanford Deland and Telworth were unsuccessful um, they will just be quite relieved to get this one away. We talked about this last week. I mean, it's interesting. Do you think there have been a number of attempts to raise money for UK equities, various kinds of uh, projects put forward, and they haven't been generally very successful, as you say. So do you think this is still an example of the fact that the UK market is generally unloved because of Brexit, the COVID virus and so on? Uh, or is there just literally uh, a bit of uh, buyer exhaustion here? They, they just don't want to get involved in this sector. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I, th- I think there is probably a little bit of issuance fatigue going on across the marketplace. Uh, as we've noted over the last few months, there have been a lot of names out there trying to raise money. But in addition to that, uh, although many people would ascribe to the view that the UK market is an interesting opportunity at the moment, and there's money to be made, and there's certainly a, a need for, for capital out there, I think everyone can agree on that, that the one of the issues is that you've got a number of existing investment companies or investment funds, particularly investment trusts, trading on relatively wide discounts. Now, they've started to narrow in actually over the last month or so with, with the better market conditions. But uh, just to give you a feel, the, the average discount on the UK small cap side on a simple average basis is probably around about 9% at the moment on a market cap weighted basis. That comes into five. But but clearly, the point is that most investment trust companies in this space are trading on discounts. And that's a headwind that you have when you come to launch a new fund focused on that area. Indeed. So we talked about, for example, you know, the success that uh, Throgmorton had, had in ra- raising secondary issuance, but they've been one of the few in the small cap sector. And indeed, you mentioned that last week, that that's very rare. We haven't actually seen much secondary issuance in the smaller mid cap sector either. So I guess it is not a total surprise that these uh, these trusts are struggling. It's a kind of inherent problem as well as a, uh, a perhaps a specific one related to today's market conditions. So we'll move on to uh, a couple of planned fundraisings or announced uh, fundraisings. Let's start with Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust. I have to say that uh, in the interest of disclosure, Winterflood Securities is the sponsor to this issue. And this trust has announced its intention to float. What can you tell us about this, Simon, bearing in mind the restrictions which you may be under? So they announced this week their intention to float. Uh, They're looking to raise up to 100 million through their IPO. uh, And that will close on the 17th of December. Uh, And it's actually quite a a different uh, investment trust. Basically, the objective is to deliver measurable positive social impact as well as long-term capital growth and income. So, I mean, the the idea is that you're investing to improve lives in the UK. It's not just about the returns. So, as the name would suggest, Schroders are involved. But actually, the delegated portfolio manager is Big Society Capital. That's the BSC in the fund's title. And they've lined up an initial portfolio of seven assets, uh, which have an aggregate valuation of £40 million on an invested basis. And that covers a range of asset classes. But essentially, there are three different types uh, of areas that the the fund will be invested in. So it's high impact housing, uh, it's debt for social enterprises, and then it's social outcomes contracts. That's probably the the smallest element of the three. But Big Society Capital have uh, pledged that they or they expect to hold 25% of the fund's share capital and Schroeder and co have said that they, on behalf of their clients, uh, will look to subscribe for about 17.5% of the issued share capital, or £17.5 million. So the fund has already got a bit of a head start in terms of its fundraising. 
um, and they're hoping to get the whole thing uh, invested about 18 months uh, from, from the launch of the fund. So this is an interesting sort of follow-on. We had the home REIT earlier on, which was uh, looking to uh, invest in social housing to help uh, the homeless and so on. So this is obviously a follow-on from that. But is the intention to invest, this is investing in, in publicly listed equities or in private projects? The emphasis will be very much on private projects. Um, yeah, private projects, private market impact funds, co-investments and, and direct investments. So it might be the case that they, they could do it a little bit on the, on the public side, but that's not where the thrust of the portfolio will be. Right. So it's not a conventional equity trust in any case. Do we have any idea where it's, where which sector it will be targeting to go in? I know uh, you're an expert on these matters, Simon, or has that not been decided yet? It has been a subject of some debate, uh, I think, within the, the, the powers of the within the AIC. I suspect, to start with, it will sit in the, the flexible investments kind of subsector, though I, I think there is a feeling in general that, you know, regardless of, of the outcome of this particular IPO, that we will see more kind of social impact investment vehicles come to the marketplace over the next year or two. And one suspects that as and when there's a, a critical mass of these funds, then you will see them, them sit in their own subsector. Well, that'll be very interesting to see whether the market in this context, the uh, investors who back IPOs, will be willing to support this kind of uh, venture. I noted from the uh, what's been publicly said that the fund is aiming to provide a NAV total return of uh, CPI plus 2%. So that's basically a real return of 2% above CPI. Quite an interesting week to be talking about CPI and RPI, of course. There's been these uh, announcements by the government that RPI is going to be phased out as the uh, as the measure used to calculate uh, future pension payments and so on in a number of areas uh, and replace it by the CPI or some variant of it. So a 2% return above the consumer price index in any event. Uh, good luck with that one, Simon. I hope that goes well for your colleagues. Let's move on and uh, talk about some results. Starting in the UK, there have been a number of trusts reporting this week, either annual or interim results. We'll concentrate first on the annual ones. Let's start with the Aberdeen Standard Equity Income Trust, ASEI. So they announced their annual results to the end of September, and uh, it's been a pretty tough year, to be honest. The NAV total return was down about 26%, and that compares with a fall of 17% for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, the total return is, is down about 29%. As the name would suggest, there's also quite a, an important income element to this particular investment trust, and earnings per share were down 28% in the period. However, despite that, the total dividend for the year has been increased. It was up about half a percent, and that represents the 20th consecutive annual dividend increase. Uh, and why is that important? It means it, it can now declare itself or be recognised as an AIC dividend hero. But that aside, it has been a very tough period. The underperformance reflected the portfolio's bias to domestically orientated mid and small caps, uh, gearing uh, also detracted, as one would suspect. The board have not just sat on their laurels here, they, they have been proactive, they've reviewed uh, the management arrangements, and uh, if uh, anyone has a spare moment to read, Richard Burns, who's the outgoing uh, chairman of this investment trust, a really uh, interesting read and an insight into how an investment trust board works or should at least work. They have reviewed all the options. They've decided not to make any changes for the time being, certainly to existing policy or arrangements. Thomas Moore remains the manager and it's fair to say that he, he had a good performance record up until about a couple of years and then hit a, a pretty uh, desperate time. And he acknowledges that uh, in his manager's report and, and, and described it as a deeply frustrating period for shareholders 
uh, and one that he's, uh, quote, absolutely determined uh, to put right. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. I think it's worth saying that obviously the equity income sector has been very, UK equity income sector has been very, uh, is a very competitive one. There's been a lot of action in that sector this year. There've been a lot of management changes, but the the board of this one have decided to stick with their manager, which I guess is, uh, well, it's a brave decision, but it's normally often the right thing to do. But uh, let's see whether that's true. I think it's also fair to comment. Is it not, is, am I right in thinking that uh, Richard Burns used to be uh, at Bailey Gifford? Is that right? Was he not at Bailey Gifford for a while? He, he absolutely was. And he was the manager of uh, Monk's Investment Trust and, and highly respected manager as well. So that's interesting that the chairman of this particular trust comes from Bailey Gifford, which has been hoovering up mandates all around the place. But this is a different sector and uh, obviously no conflicts there. Let's hope that uh, in this case, the uh, the board has made the right decision. Uh, let's move on to a couple more, which are either in this sector or related sectors. Uh, let's start with BMO Capital and Income, BCI. That's the ticker. They've had annual results for the same period, so we could actually compare their performance with uh, that of Aberdeen Standard Equity Income. Well, how have they done? Uh, they've done a little bit better, um, but still they've underperformed the wider UK market. So they had an NAV total return down 21% for that year to the end of September. And as mentioned, the FTSE All Share was down about 17%. In share price terms, uh, not quite as bad as NAV, but it was still down about 20% or so. And again, this is in the equity income space, and so the dividend is a very important part of the story. Uh, and they have declared total dividends of 11.5p for the year, which is up just short of 1% from the previous year. And that represents the 27th consecutive year of dividend growth. So they are, again, an AIC dividend hero. Uh, and that's despite the fact their revenue per share fell from about 13p down to just above 8p. So um, a tough period. Julian Kane has been managing this particular investment trust uh, since the uh, back end of the 90s. And over that period of time has developed a good track record, but clearly very, very tough. Quite a big uh, weighting, 40% or so to the mid cap uh, and quite a large weighting to financials as well. And both those things would have acted as a headwind this year. It's interesting what kind of divergence of performance we get, because we can go and look at another member of the sector, which is also published annual results for the same period and has the same benchmark, which is the FTSE All Share Index, and that is Troy Income and Growth, TIGT. They've done rather better, it's fair to say. They have indeed. So their NAV total return was still down, but down uh, a mere 9%, as mentioned against the, the, the UK market's fall of 17%. So Troy, in common with the, the other uh, investment trusts in the Troy stable, real emphasis on, on quality companies, more defensive, and they really minded to kind of protect shareholders' capital as well. So looking for absolute returns. Obviously, there were some things that didn't work for them quite so well, but effectively a significant outperformance. The interesting thing on this one, and we already knew about this to be fair, so although the total dividends in respect to the year were, were up slightly just above 1%, they had already uh, announced that their dividend run rate is being reset to below 2p per share for their next financial year. And they believe that's a more sustainable level. And they've talked at Troy quite often about uh, the idea that probably in the UK market there's been uh, over-distribution historically, uh, and uh, that was something they were very uh, wary of. Indeed, and that's a very interesting point, of course, because there is a price to be paid, as we said before, in terms of uh, capital gain foregone if you... uh, concentrate too heavily on the income you want to get from your equity portfolio, particularly in the current climate. 
So they have a very different experience of these three trusts. Uh, let's look at the NAV. One down 26% in NAV terms, one down 21%, and one down 9%. So there's been a wide range of performance disparity between these three trusts. Okay, they have different approaches, obviously. Just tell us how they've been trading. What's uh, What are the discounts of these three trusts, and uh, how do they compare? Which direction are they moving in? Yeah, so Troy Income and Grove has a, a, a well-established zero discount policy. So it trades around NAV, uh, and it kind of buys back or issues shares in order to ensure that happens. In fact, in that in this particular year to the end of September, uh, they've issued just short of 54 million shares uh, and 1 million shares have been repurchased. So you can see there's been a clear direction of travel there. The Aberdeen Standard Equity Income Fund, uh, that's been trading on a discount, uh, obviously reflecting its difficult performance period. It probably is around about 8% discount or so at the moment. Um, probably an interesting thing to note on, on that particular fund is that it is one of the highest yielders in the UK equity income space, probably around about 7%, 7.1% at the moment. Um, the BMO Capital and Income Fund, again, that's trading around uh, NAV uh, and that has a 4% yield. Uh, and BMO also have been able to uh, issue shares in that in their last financial year. So it's a timely reminder again of a, of a timeless lesson that the headline yield is not always a guide to... Uh the best performers in the equity income sectors. While we're talking about uh, Troy, income and growth, we briefly mentioned some thoughts you've had about Securities Trust of Scotland, which earlier this year appointed Troy as its new investment manager. They produced some full year results, obviously, uh, they produced some results recently, but um, what have been your take on the uh, on the new regime and what are they doing and how are they doing so far? It's very early days, to be perfectly honest. So James Harries of Troy Asset Management uh, has taken on responsibility for Securities Trust of Scotland, uh, and that's only from the 12th of November. So literally, uh, we're just into the, the first few weeks. The portfolio, it will be positioned uh, in a very similar way to his uh, existing open-ended fund, which is the Trojan Global Income Fund, um, and which he's been responsible for for a number of years now. So we can kind of get an insight into how the investment trust will position uh, from that. Uh, and I think the emphasis is on, again, as you'd expect from, from Troy, it's very high quality companies with very much an eye to, to absolute returns over a number of years. I mean, in terms of the, the investment team at Troy, they absolutely share their research. It's a, it's a boutique. There's probably about 180 to 200 stocks that they monitor. 30, 35 of those will end up in the Portfolio Securities Trust of Scotland, obviously ones that fit the mandate. And the emphasis is on not just generating uh, attractive returns, but doing it with less volatility than, than some of their peer groups. That's a very important part of uh, what they hope to achieve. Yes, I thought the interesting point there was that uh, obviously they do run an open-ended fund equivalent, but this one is going to use gearing. They're going to use uh, sort of 10% gearing or so, which will help to differentiate it from the performance of the open-ended fund and might or might not prove to give some extra zest to the returns over time, depending on obviously on how the markets behave and how their holdings behave. And I notice also that they've only had one holding cut their dividend this year in the open-ended fund, which is going to be mirrored in this particular trust. So it kind of emphasizes their uh, focus on quality companies that aren't at risk of having to cut their dividends because of even events like the pandemic that we've experienced. Let's move on and talk about another uh, UK equity trust, a very different animal. This one, this is Bailey Gifford UK Growth, BG UK. As we know, Bailey Gifford have been on a strong run across all their mandates, but how has their uh, growth approach been working in the in this particular UK trust? 
So Bailey Gifford UK Growth uh, announced their interim results for the six months to the end of October, and it's been a pretty decent period for them, actually. The NAV total return was up about 11%, and that compares with uh, a decline of 2% for the FTSE All Share. In share price total return terms, it's even stronger, up about 15%. So it's a very concentrated portfolio, probably about 40 to 45 holdings. They've had a number of successes in that particular time. In common with all the Bailey Gifford funds, they're less interested in results over a relatively short period, which obviously six months is. So it's Ian McCombie and Milena Mileva assumed responsibility for this investment trust at the end of June in 2018. So we're kind of two and a half years in. And since they were appointed manager, the, the NAV total return is up 12% compared with a fall of 7% for the, the FTSE All Share. So that is what they will be more interested in. Well, it's obviously good relative performance in the UK market. It's obviously dwarfed somewhat by the, the results of the sister growth trusts, which are in other parts of the world, which have been storming ahead. We could talk about one of them, which is Bailey Gifford European Growth which is a uh, recently uh, become a Bailey Gifford Trust. What have their results been like? Yeah, so they announced their annual results to the end of September. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, a very strong period. Uh, NAV total return up nearly 38% during that 12 months, uh, compared with a slight decline for the FTSE Europe XUK index. In share price terms, even stronger share price total return up 54%. The portfolio was organised, uh, reorganised, I beg your pardon, only towards the end of last year. So um, this is really only about nine months of Bailey Gifford, nine or ten months or so. But the, the reorganisation was obviously uh, very successful. They only retained one investment from the, the portfolio that they inherited from Edinburgh Partners, uh, which was Ryanair as a matter of interest, and they obviously put 40 new investments uh, in. Um, there's also an unlisted company in the portfolio, and Bailey Gifford, as we know, have been very active in terms of the, the unlisted marketplace. And this is a company called North Vault, a Swedish battery developer has found its way in. But a very impressive start uh, under Bailey Gifford's stewardship for this particular investment trust. So let's uh, move on. And we're going to skip over one or two interim results on, on the grounds that, that we've got a lot to get through. So we're going to concentrate mainly on annual results uh, uh, after looking at those two. But let's have a look next in the flexible investment sector. Let's look at JP Morgan Elect, JPE and JPEI. Can you tell us, first of all, what this trust does? And then uh, can you tell us how they've been doing? Yeah, it's a slightly unusual investment trust, this one. Um, it actually has three share classes. So it has a, an income leg, a growth leg, and it also has a cash option as well. Uh, and the uh, attraction for shareholders is that they can switch between the different share classes on a quarterly basis. Uh, without triggering a capital gains tax. So it's tax efficient to switch between the different classes. Uh, the cash option probably speaks for itself, but the, the managed growth leg is actually, effectively, it's a fund of funds. So there's also JP Morgan uh, Investment Trust there, and that reflects its legacy, but it has a 50% all share and a 50% FTSE World Index. So you're kind of getting a mixture of UK and global. Uh, the managed income leg is very much a, a, a kind of classic UK equity income type mandate. So it announced its annual results this week to the end of August. The managed growth, which is the fund of funds, uh, they actually outperformed. Its NAV was up, total return of about uh, half a percent or so, compared with a decline of about 3% for its benchmark. Um, in terms of the managed income, that was kind of broadly in line with, uh, so this is the UK equity income side, but it was kind of broadly in line with its benchmark, the, the FTSE All Share. Its NAV total return was down 
12%. But as you'd imagine, the dividend is a big part of the managed income leg, certainly, um, and uh, they actually increased their dividend. So the, the total dividend for the year was 4.7p, uh, which was uh, an increase on the previous year. What kind of uh, shareholders would that uh, kind of trust have? Or what's the target market for uh, that kind of trust? Is, is it competing with the absolute preferred funds like Tri, Trojan and so on? Yes, I mean, the income share class sits in the UK equity income subsector, um, and it has a yield at the moment of uh, above 5%, which is clearly uh, will be quite attractive to, to some shareholders uh, and compares with an average of about 4.5%. For the UK equity income peer group overall. The managed growth uh, absolutely sits in flexible investments uh, and there are a number of investment trusts of investment trusts. I think we talked about a number of them before including uh, the BMO uh, managed portfolio one. Uh, there's one that uh, Nick Greenwood at Myton has been responsible for a number of years as well. So it would kind of sit alongside those investment trusts. Well, let's move on and talk about some other companies that have been reporting their results. Let's start off with another specialist fund called Invesco Enhanced Income. They've had some annual results out. The name on that one is a bit of a clue to what they do. So let's talk about Invesco Enhanced Income, which ticker is IPE. Yep, so they had annual results out to the end of September. Their NAV total return in the period was um, near enough 5%, uh, and that compares with about a half percent for, um, they measure their performance against three-month LIBOR, so they outperformed on that basis. The revenue fell uh, during this time, it fell from uh, 4.9p to about 4.5p, although the dividends have been maintained at uh, 5p using revenue reserves. However, the chairman of this investment trust noted that they will have to kind of keep the current dividend policy under review and uh, you know assess whether it's sustainable. And obviously, it's about balancing the need for the current income against a requirement to preserve capital to earn that income uh, in the first place. So this is a, in the, the a bond fund. It sits in the bond sector, but it's uh, it's geared exposure to bonds. And actually, the, the gearing has been increased from 15% to 22% uh, over the year. And in terms of what the managers have been doing, it's managed by a chap called Reese Davies, looking very much on the lower risk bonds as a way to mitigate capital risk. I suppose that's necessary if you're going to increase your gearing in that way. You need to balance that to some extent by the kind of bonds you choose to invest in because you're increasing risk with one measure and uh, decreasing it with another. So uh, that's an interesting balancing act. Let's talk about some trusts which have their interim results out. We will mention some of them now we've got through the annual results, but we won't mention them all. Let's pick out a couple that I think may be of interest to the listeners here. What about Aberdeen Japan Investment Trust? That uh, produces interim results. Uh, Japan's been a very interesting sector for a number of years and quite a strong one in the investment trust space. How have Aberdeen Japan been doing and how does that compare to their, their peer group? So it was a good period for Aberdeen Japan Investment Trust. They announced interim results for the six months to the end of September. Uh, the NAV total return was up 26% in that time, and that compares with a 15% rise for their benchmark index. Uh, in share price terms, not quite as good, but still up uh, 18% on a total return basis, uh, with the discount just widening out a little bit. But probably one of the kind of key things there to note is that the board is happy uh, with the gearing level of, of 10%. They think that's an appropriate level at the moment, and that's probably reflective of the opportunity uh, that they see there. 
Uh, and they have been busy in terms of buying some uh, shares back as well, just in order to alleviate that discount widely amount. How does their rating compare to the others in the sector? We've we've talked about this a little bit before. I think there's quite a wide disparity in performance. What about in terms of discounts? It has one of the wider discounts in the, the Japanese sector. Um, it's trading on about a 13% discount at the moment. Um, that compares with the average of about 4% on a market cap weighted basis. Uh, there's quite a range, to be perfectly fair. Schroeder Japan Growth's on a wider discount at 15, and that has a more value-orientated approach, which has uh, been proven tricky this year. Uh, and then at the other end of the scale, um, you've got Bailey Gifford Japan, probably trading on a small premium. In the uh, Japanese small cap space, again, Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon on a 5% premium, uh, some of the top rated ones. Uh, and AVI Japan Opportunity, which I think we possibly may have mentioned before, that's on a 2% premium as well. So there's quite a range of ratings for Japanese investment trusts in general. So I suppose it's fair to say about Aberdeen Japan that they've had a good period, but their longer term record is not quite as good as some of their peer group. Let's uh, switch countries and nip across to India to talk about Aberdeen New India. Also had interim results out. India has been an interesting market as well this year. It has indeed, and probably every year, to be perfectly honest. There's always uh, lots to talk about in terms of India. Uh, Aberdeen New India had its uh, interim results out to the end of September again. NAV total return of uh, just short of 26%, uh, which is quite impressive, although it did represent an underperformance of the MSCI India index, which was actually up 33%. So it benefited from holdings uh, in the information technology services area, um, but it was underweight reliance, uh, which is one of the large weights in India, and that probably acted as a bit of a headwind. This trust uh, is in which sector? Which uh, There's not many directly comparable trusts. There are a couple of Indian trusts. Uh, but I think it's in the country specialist sector, is it not? Asia Pacific X Japan. So you've got Chinese trusts, you've got Vietnam, you've got uh, India, you've got Thailand, you've got one or two others. So uh, it's not really, you can't really compare it across the sector as a whole. It is a rather uh, bespoke sector. Is, is that fair to say? It, it is fair to say. And it is actually a, a talking point across the investment trust industry at the moment. So the AIC uh, and the uh, Exalted Statistics Committee, uh, of which we've mentioned once or twice in the past, have actually put proposals out for, for discussion to, to split out uh, the three uh, investment trusts focused on China and actually the four investment trusts focused on in India for this very reason. So in other words, create distinct subsectors because it clearly it makes far more sense to compare investment trusts investing in particular countries or, or geographies against each other. While we're on this area, you might as well look at a couple of the Emerging market investment trusts, uh, obviously the country specialist trusts have some part in the emerging markets overall. Uh, let's start with the big one, that is uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, TEM, very well-known trust, been around for a long time, produced some interims. It had interim results up to the end of September and uh, a pretty decent period for Templeton Emerging Markets. The NAV total return was up 31% during that time and that compared to a rise of 24% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. In share price terms, uh, it was up 28%. So yes, a pretty decent period for it. Uh, as always, um, they had a number of their, their long-term holdings um, perform very well for them. Uh, equally, there was a number that uh, were not quite so successful. One thing to note for, for shareholders is that the, they've agreed to reduce the fee on assets above uh, a billion pounds, uh, which will have a, a benefit, obviously, to ongoing shareholders. I suppose it's fair to say there were some people who uh, who wondered what might happen to Templeton Emerging Markets after uh, the famous Mark Mobius left and is now running his own investment trust at the age of 80-odd. 
Is it fair to ask how well the Mobius Investment Trust has done compared to the Templeton Emerging Markets Trust? Obviously, the Mobius Trust has not been going very long, but uh, I wonder how this uh, sort of battle of the of the new boys and the old boys is, is shaking up. Is a very good question. I don't have the numbers in front of me how uh, it's performed since the launch of the Mobius Investment Trust. I can tell you that over the last 12 months, in NAV terms, uh, that Templeton uh, has the lead. It's up 19% compared with 17% for the Mobius Investment Trust. But uh, as you rightly observe, it's a, it's a relatively short time period since the Mobius Investment Trust uh, was launched. Its discount has narrowed in recently, actually. It did go out to a little bit of a discount. It has tightened in, and it's now on about a 3% discount. And that compares with 9% for the Templeton Emerging Markets. So in that regard alone, the, the Mobius Investment Trust um, has a higher rating. It's worth, I suppose, reiterating also the fact that we're talking about interim results now. So this is covering the six months to the 30th September. So basically after the uh, the nadia of the early pandemic market crash. So all these numbers are going to look quite big because they're coming back from obviously everything suffered during the market sell-off. So some of these numbers look quite good, but you have to go back and look at actually how they performed over longer periods to maybe get a better sense of the performance of these various trusts we're talking about. The interim period is not a representative one by any means. We can, however, compare the performance of Templeton Emerging Markets to Utilico Emerging Markets, that's UEM, which have just produced interim results for the same period, and they have the same benchmark, which is helpful. So what's been the story there? How have they done? Not as well as Templeton, I think, is the headline. Their NAV total return was up uh, 12%, as you say, um, with the same benchmark up 24% uh, in that time. Though, to be fair, they're doing something quite different. If people haven't come across them before, it's worth uh, having a look at what they do. They're focused on um, utilities and infrastructure plays in emerging markets. Uh, and really, it's a very specialist uh, investment trust, very specialist portfolio, looking at profitable and cash-generative uh, listed businesses. So over that particular six-month period, they, they certainly underperformed. But uh, income is a large part of the story. Their dividend of 3.85p uh, was fully covered by earnings of 5.6p, and uh, the total dividend of 7.7p is expected in respect of their financial year to the end of March next year, and that would be represent an increase of 1.7%. Um, so again, a very key part of their premise. So again, it's worth making the point that though they're both in the global emerging market sector, they are actually doing rather different things. It's obviously not necessarily fair to compare them directly. Interesting, but not necessarily fair. Let's talk about another well-known investment trust. This is Hickel Infrastructure, H-I-C-L, Hickel. They've had some half-yearly results out as well. Uh, infrastructure's obviously been an interesting place to be this year. What have they had to say? So they had their half-year results up to the end of September. Their NAV total return is uh, 3.8%, so it was a positive NAV return. Probably one of the things that's going to catch um, shareholders' eyes, one suspect, is that they have faced headwinds, particularly on the availability uh, aspect of their portfolio. They're on track to meet their 8.25p dividend, but the dividend growth that was originally planned for this financial year and for next of 2.4% is no longer the case. They're actually just going to try and maintain their dividend. They did make the point, though, in terms of the, the discount rate, and they actually uh, the reduction in the discount rate was one of the reasons why their NAV total return was up. Um, but they made the point that the, the risk premium that they use to value the portfolio, that it, they, they think it's unsustainable at 6.4%. 
and if they were just to uh, decrease that by half a percent, their NAV would be up 5.5%. So the, the valuations of these infrastructure funds are so sensitive to the discount rates that are being used. Right, and as we said before, there are sort of guidelines that uh, these kind of funds choose to follow. But as you say, the kind of inputs you put into them do make a big impact on the current valuations as they are reported. Uh, and I think I've asked you this question before, but I might as well ask it again. I mean, how consistent are these trusts across the sector in using the same kind of discount rates and uh, and so on? You know, there are guidelines and uh, and so on, but is it actually followed in the observance, as I might say? There'll be different discount rates used for, for different projects. So although they might talk about a discount rate that, that they that, that's effective on average across the portfolio within the actual different assets, there'll be different discount rates reflecting uh, different risk characteristics and so on and, and assumptions. Of course, the uh, the main feature of these kind of trusts is that they should deliver their long-term kind of returns. And uh, you hope that in any case, the valuations don't uh, get too misleading over time. We've got a couple of others, not in the same sector necessarily, but in the same broader grouping of infrastructure. We've got uh, JLEN Environmental Assets Group. That's uh, John Lang Environmental Assets Group. I think it used to be known as it's JLEN. What's uh, what's their story? How have they been performing over this same period? JLEN had their interim results out to the end of September. Their NAV was uh, down slightly from 97.5p to 96.1p. And that just reflects the, the longer term um, electricity and, and power prices. Um, they declared a, a quarterly dividend uh, of 1.69p. So um, in terms of the period, it's 3.38p, and that's in line uh, with the target. And the cash dividend cover was 1.1 times. So that's in line with the same period last year. And the board have reaffirmed the target for the full year of 3.76p. So basically, this is a, a fund, as the name would suggest, of environmental assets. So it's wind, solar. Uh, anaerobic digestion and hydra and in terms of the generation from those four different areas it was two and a half percent above budget so uh, still performing well so we can you know roughly compare it to next energy solar fund that's a more specialist trust obviously operating in the solar field we've talked about them before but i think they've uh, produced some half year results now yep they had their interim results up to the end of september uh, their nev was uh, up slightly from 99 to 99 spot 6p their NAV total return was just above 4%, so 4.1%. So although the short-term inflation had a negative impact on their NAV, basically they benefited actually from a minor increase in power price forecasts, which is obviously decent news. Their cash dividend cover was also positive at 4.2 times, and they've unchanged their full-year dividend target at uh, 7 spot 05p as well. So um, all pretty positive there. I just noted one thing there, which is they said they've completed their dividend policy review and they are moving to a progressive dividend policy. We've never heard of a trust that has the opposite of a progressive dividend policy, but uh, that's what people say. So what have they moved from and what do they mean by a progressive dividend policy as opposed to what they were doing before? So I think what they mean with progressive dividend policy is they're going to look to increase it year on year in common with a, a number of the renewable infrastructure funds at one stage, they were inflation linked. That became too onerous for most. I don't think any are now linked into inflation. So I think you're just seeing a natural change in line with their peer group. Yes, the other thing I noticed there was uh, they talked about uh, how Ofgem, which is the regulator, has been conducting some audit of its assets, I guess because these uh, a lot of these solar contracts are guaranteed returns over a period and so on. And Ofgem's job is to regulate the kind of returns they can make. Is that a serious threat in this sector, do you think? Or is that uh, 
something that is uh, already priced in? It's a little bit of a technical issue, but effectively the, the audit is it's looking at um, the ROCs, which are the Renewable Obligation Certificates, and the, these are effectively paved the way for the, uh, the subsidies that these investment vehicles receive. And basically, the subsidies have diminished in time. So there was always a question over when the ROCs were granted, because uh, the, the ones that were granted further back had effectively a higher level of subsidy. So this audit process is just to determine that, that they were actually um, set up in the correct period. So there's a bit of banding downgrading going on, I think. And it does have financial implications. Um, Next Energy seller have already taken a hit, I think, of um, £1.2 million pounds, uh, earlier in the year on two assets. But it's just something to keep an eye on. Um, I, I don't think it's anything to cause massive alarm at this stage. Well, another thing to keep an eye on in that particular specialist sector. So let's finish off. Sorry, we had to skip a couple of interim results, but uh, we'll come back to those trusts in due course, I'm sure. But let's finish off with our usual final visit to the property sector. Nothing again about uh, music royalties this week, I'm afraid. But we'll go back to the property sector. And there have been some latest interim results where, first of all, we've heard from LXI REIT. We have indeed, and uh, they announced their uh, interim results to the end of September. Their NAV per share was actually down about 3% or so in that time, so an NAV total return of just down about half a percent. So their portfolio was revalued at the end of September, and you know, £890 million worth of, of assets. The, the, the problem there is, are, unsurprisingly, in the hotel and, and leisure assets. Dividends declared in respect of the, of the half-year uh, total 2.65p, so that is a reduction on, on the previous rate, down about 8%. But the rent collection rate, which is obviously a number that everyone's keeping a very close eye on at the moment in the property sector, was 91%. So in terms of kind of going forward, the uh, the quarter dividend target is 1.44p, which is expected to be fully covered by rents, and actually represents a marginally higher level than pre-pandemic dividend levels. So it looks like they're they're back on track. Well, that's a very impressive outcome, if that is indeed the case, that they can pay a higher dividend than they were before the pandemic. Uh, that might explain why they uh, they trade rather better than a lot of the other property investment trusts we've talked about. We can briefly mention real estate credit investments, RECI. That's obviously a slightly different uh, vehicle to the, your conventional property investment company. What have they had to say? What have their results been like? Yeah, so this is a portfolio of 50-plus real estate bonds and loans. They had their interim results out to the end of September and an annualised NAV total return of 9.5% in the period, uh, with the with the NAV up slightly from 147p to 148p. Um, they've continued to pay their quarterly dividend of 3p per share, and they, they've done that throughout the pandemic. Their earnings per share for the, for the six-month period was 6.8p, and so that's up from 6.3p in the in the first half of 2020. And their leverage that they're using remains relatively modest at one spot, one, six times. So that's a slightly different animal. And then finally, let's finish up with one of the well-known investment trusts in the sector, which is TR Property, T-R-Y. Been around for many, many years, and they have a slightly distinctive approach. They tend to perform quite well. But what's uh, what's their story with the interim results there? So they had interim results out to the end of September. Um, again, a pretty decent period. NAV total return up about 15% or so, and that compares with their benchmark, which was up 10%. Um, they benefited by being overweight uh, logistics and industrial property while uh, being underweight retail. Uh, so that's the kind of positive area. We should say they invest in 
publicly listed equities, but they do have a physical property portfolio. It only represents about 6% or so of assets. Uh, and that had a, a total return that was a downslide about 1% or so in the period. But revenue earnings per share, uh, they were down 23% year on year, but they've maintained the interim dividend at 5.2p. And, and the intention from the board is they want to maintain the full year dividend as a similar level to the previous years, and they were prepared to use revenue reserves if necessary. So they are a very different animal to the conventional property investment trust. I suppose that anything that sort of binds these three trusts together, they all do very different things, but they are all trading quite well, are they not? I mean, they're on discounts, but they're nothing like on the bad, big discounts that uh, some of the other uh, mainstream conventional property trusts are trading on. Yeah, that's right. So TR Property um, trading on probably about an 8% discount now compared with uh, an average of about 6% over the previous 12 months. So as you say, it's, it's um, a long-standing investment trust and have a strong following. Uh, we've even seen it trade on, on a premium rating uh, in the not-too-distant past. LXI REIT, again, very different story. It was only launched back in February 2017, but it's performed very uh, impressively since then. I think it's annualised return is just short of 10% over that period, so a relatively short period, but one of the reasons one suspects why it's trading around NAV at the moment, that and the fact that it's been managed to build its dividend back up uh, quite so quickly. Uh, and the real estate credit investments vehicle, again, you know, property debt, but that's on about a um, 10 or 11% discount or so at the moment. Okay, so I think that's all we have time for. We're coming up to uh, December and we're getting into the end of year market uh, psychology. Last week, we talked about the fact that there is quite an impetus to get as much fundraising done before the end of the year. And quite often we see a market rally. But again, you, as you said, the market this week has been pretty quiet. Do you think that's going to pick up again in the next few weeks? Any any thoughts on that? Um, it's entirely possible. As I said, we've had Thanksgiving this week. So the US market has, has been closed and you know, it just goes very quiet around Thanksgiving. Could we see some more activity uh, as we head in the first few weeks of December? It's entirely possible. You know, let's hope it's in a, in a positive way, perhaps more developments on, on the vaccine front. But equally, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise if we, if we, after having a couple of steps forward, we do take one step back. But uh, one thing's for sure, I think that once we hit, hit that kind of mid-late December period, that things will start to get very quiet. And, and that, at that time, historically, you do start to see markets kind of drifting up, albeit on the back of uh, low volume. Indeed. Thank you very much. We'll look forward to speaking again next week and we'll find out whether that is indeed going to be what happens. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.